this is Jeff Kober, and we welcome you to this Disney at Work podcast where we bring ideas from the happiest places on earth to your own organization and experience. The success of the Indiana Jones epic stunt spectacular is due to so many things, among them polished stunt performers, amazing technical effects, and a tie to a great film, Raiders of the Lost Ark. That film has its own story around Prost, but the show at Disney's Hollywood Studios in Walt Disney World wouldn't have come together if it wasn't for Jerry Reese, who took a stunt show and made it something both epic and spectacular. We look at how that came to be, and in Disney's trust in Jerry's ability to make movie magic come to life. But the story doesn't end there, as this is a show that involves real stunt performers doing things that are actually dangerous, even fatal. We look at that reality and its own repercussions. It's a story that suggests how important trust is to creating success, not just in a world of make-believe, but in the, wor- in the real world itself. The idea for doing this particular podcast came about a week ago when I was at um, Islands of Adventure at Universal uh, uh, Florida. And uh, while we were there, uh, we were standing in line for the new Hagrid's co- uh, coaster, which is an amazing coaster. And oh, by the way, I am very much overdue for giving you uh, a review. We want to do a review on it and the new uh, Velocicoaster and some other new shows and attractions over at Universal Studios. I know this is primarily a Disney podcast, but every once in a while, it's kind of interesting to see what the what the competition is doing across the street, so to speak. So anyway, in order to accommodate a very long queue for uh, Hagrid's, they chose to route everybody through uh, lesser known, uh, less traveled portions, may I say, of the Lost Continent Land, which sits on the other side of uh, the wizarding world of Harry Potter, the Hogsmeade uh, experience. and. Uh, and that queue wound and wound and came right up into um, the uh, Sinbad stunt show, which um, was actually, I think, one of the original shows that premiered at Islands of Adventure when it first opened. That show, uh, many people haven't seen it, and and there is a reason. There's a couple of reasons uh, for that. One of them is that the theater sits so far back, a lot of people didn't know that it actually existed. And that was a kind of a problem in terms of its layout. But the eighth voyage of Sinbad, and, and it was interesting because the queue, what they'll do is when the queue gets long, they'll actually take the empty theater and they'll route the queue through the, um, through the audience and you know going back and forth uh, through the stands. And uh, and you can see the show. It's the whole uh, the whole show setup, the whole all the scenery and everything is still very much intact. There, it's a very elaborate set. And yet, I was standing there thinking. In fact, I even heard others saying, "Well, what is that show? Um, what? Uh, why isn't it open?" And 
And, um, and obviously because of COVID isn't open, but frankly, I don't think it was open very much even before the pandemic. Uh, it had gone to, at best, a seasonal kind of offering. And if I were to sum up, there were, there were several things that were not working with the eighth voyage of Sinbad. And by the way, when I say Sinbad, we are not talking about the same Sinbad that I reference at the end of every podcast, which is a Tokyo Disney attraction that is totally amazing and that focuses on the compass of your heart. But this is a whole different show. And it is a stunt show, and it's Voyage of Sinbad. And you look at it, and you can and you can see it on YouTube. It may be the only way you see it. Is you watch through it. Yeah, there are some problems um, with effects and with uh, timing and and so forth. But the long and short of it is, it's a it's a poorly written show. It's just not well written. And that kind of made me think about the experience uh, that the Indiana Jones Epic Stunt Spectacular had in opening and how it came to be. By the way, I also had the chance to see the Bourne Stunt Spectacular, uh, or the Bourne, I think it's called the Bourne Stuntacular, um, which uses a very large LED screen, very similar to how they film scenes in Mandalorian. It's now become the new thing and they are outfitting a lot of studio um, uh, sound stages with these very large LED screens. And this plays out in front of an LED screen. So the car goes running down the street and it looks like it's going very fast, but the car is actually standing still. It's a very intriguing show as well. as a st And it is a stunt show. Um, but in the words of my... <laughs> And my son, who frankly is an Indiana Jones fan, dad, it's just not Indiana Jones. And there's truth to that. But it is worthy of a, a review and hopefully we'll come back to that at some point. All of this made me really think about the Indiana Jones epic stunt spectacular and what makes it work. And if there is one word that I would put to how it has succeeded, it is the word trust. Trust is defined by my friends and colleagues, uh, Chuck and Mary Lofi, as, quote, a felt sense of safety. Trust is a felt sense of safety. In other words, trust and, and safety are very synonymous terms. And that lies at the heart of, of, uh, of this show. And so let's, uh, let's go back. The Indiana Jones Epic Stunt Spectacular began regular operations nearly four months after the park opened on May 1st of 1989. But the story of Indiana Jones, the film, goes back much farther. George Lucas had already enjoyed blockbuster success with Star Wars through 20th Century Fox. But now Lucas and Steven Spielberg had gone to Paramount at the urging of Michael Eisner. Yes, that Michael Eisner, Disney CEO, but at this time he was uh, responsible for film production at Paramount. He was then president and CEO of Paramount Pictures. And there they proposed to Michael doing a film together. However, the Star Wars sequel, The Empire Strikes Back, went way over budget. And Steven Spielberg's last epic, 
1941, uh, was not nearly as successful as the bo- at the box office as were his previous films, Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Could Eisner and Paramount trust Spielberg and Lucas to pull it off? As Eisner wrote in his biography, Work in Progress, he went to Skywalker Ranch to meet with Lucas, who shared his philosophy about making movies. Quote, it isn't necessary to make a perfect movie. That's just a formula for going broke. You have to make the movie good enough to achieve the desired magic. There's a difference between magic and perfection. Magic is sleight of hand, and so is movie making. We're not trying to paint a picture. We're making a film. There are 24 frames per second. Too many directors make movies for the eyes and ignore the ears. Sound can create just as much magic and far more inexpensively. In less than 10 minutes, George Lucas won over Michael's trust, and Paramount trusted Spielberg and Lucas to create a great film. The movie still had a fairly big budget, but Raiders of the Lost Ark was a box office triumph, and it led to successful sequels. It was important to Eisner that Indiana Jones, and or that the Indiana Jones brand be part of the new Disney MGM Studios. You remember, at this point, Disney did not own Lucasfilm or the rights to Indiana Jones. Um, but Eisner felt like it needed to be part of the new studios. They didn't have a lot of IP at the time. That's why they also turned to um, MGM's... Uh, Wizard of Oz and to Casablanca and other um, show experiences or great moments in film in order to create something that would attract audience to the new park. At any rate, it was only one of many attractions uh, under development for the opening of the park uh, when Indiana Jones got started. One young director, Jerry Reese, was working on four different film projects in time for the park's opening. The first piece, uh, entitled Back to Neverland, used Walter Cronkite and Robin Williams in a very inventive way to explain the art of animation at the Magic of Disney Animation Tour. I'll I'll try to put up a a film clip from this. This This really was one of the most amazing moments in um, Robin Williams' career. This little piece is a gem where he becomes a lost boy and it is, and he plays off of Walter Cronkite. Uh, It was truly an amazingly funny, funny film that just pretty much had me rolling off of my chair when I first saw it. Uh, That film was a huge project, but Reese had three other films as well for this project. He had also taken over for Bob Zemeckis, who, after completing Who Framed Roger Rabbit, was supposed to do a short piece featuring Michael Eisner and Mickey Mouse at the end of the backstage tour. This, too, is a very funny piece where Mickey comes up on Michael as he's uh, talking to audiences at his desk and saying, hey, 
uh, Michael, we've got we've got to take in a screening. It's 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 time for the screening. And and Michael looks at his watch and it's a Mickey Mouse watch. And then Mickey looks at his watch and it's a Michael Eisner watch. And they all head down and gather everybody. And then Mickey sits down on the front row of the theater to watch the show. But they're somewhere in the way. So he says, hey, could you move? And all of a sudden, Chernabog from Fantasia, dun, 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 turns around and all his fire and, and, oh, and Mickey gets scared. And then Michael comes up and says, hey, would you, would you kind of move, would you kind of scoot down so we can see the film? Oh, 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 sorry, Mr. Eisner, sorry. And it's just a very funny, very funny film. I will put a link into the, into the show notes for that film as well. And, and at any rate, Reese was working on that film. Another piece involved Rick Moranis and Goldie Hawn providing video for the walking portion of the tour. And a final piece featured George uh, Lucas. In fact, Reese went up to Skywalker Ranch to film Lucas. And there they actually got to know and trust each other. So Reese was heavily involved with all these film projects that complemented the, um, the Disney MGM studio experience. When the park opened, the Indiana Jones Epic Stunt Spectacular Auditorium had been turned over as a stage for performances by George Burns, Willie Nelson, and the Pointer Sisters. The attraction didn't open up with the rest of the park on day one, but there was also another reason. Glenn Randall, stunt director for the show, had done a great job coordinating the stunts. He had worked in the industry for 25 years as a stuntman, stunt coordinator, and a second unit director on projects such as E.T., Poltergeist, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. But George Lucas didn't like the script for the stunt show. On opening night at Disney MGM Studios, Lucas saw Jerry Brees and invited him over to discuss the show with himself, Michael Eisner, and Jeffrey Katzenberg. Reese had come to celebrate that evening, having made some really tough deadlines to get these films ready for opening. He wasn't prepared for their request. They asked if Reese would fix the problems they saw in the show. He thought it was a joke, but they were serious. Reese had not only just finished the four projects initially on his plate, but he was still working on Cranium Command for the new Wonders of Life Pavilion at Epcot, which, let me just stop there and say, again, another amazing, very funny, underrepresented show at Epcot. It is a shame that that got closed because it was the best part, in my opinion, of the Wonders of Life Pavilion. At any rate, that team trusted Reese to help fix Indiana Jones because they trusted him under pressure. He, in turn, gave the show a makeover just prior to its opening a few months later. Their trust in Jerry Reese has paid off. The Indiana Jones Epic Stunt Spectacular has had a long, successful run with well over 50,000 shows and very few changes to what was the original script. Trust also exists in a different but very important way among the professional Indiana Jones stunt performers who depend on everyone around them to make their cues. 
Let me assure you, these stunts, which look flawless and which, frankly, turn out perfect 99.99999% of the time, are still stunts that could result in an accident, in a, an injury, a life injury, and even a fatality. This particular concern about safety played out well even before the show opened. Uh, initially, there were some concerns that performers had with a particular stunt. It was referred to as the slide for life. And in the show, you remember that Indiana and Miriam are on the rooftops of Cairo and they are involved in this big fight. Well, how does Miriam get off the roof? Well, originally the idea was for her to slide down this rope that um, was easily 30 feet, 40 feet high. And that rope kind of slid toward the audience at which point she would be caught as she landed by the bad guys, taken from there and then put into the truck for the next scene where the truck goes around and then explodes. Well, there was concern about this slide for life and involved in this uh, <laughs> uh, concern and debate at that time was Bob Lamb, who was serving as the first VP over uh, Disney MGM Studios. Bob Lamb had come up through the ranks. He had helped open Space Mountain. He had played a significant role with Epcot and its opening. He um, was uh, the first VP of Disney MGM Studios and actually became the first VP of Disney's Animal Kingdom. In fact, I have a, uh, an image of when cast members were getting ready, um, they wanted to do something to say thank you for your hard work. And so the Federal Deserve, not the Federal Reserve, but the Federal Deserve created what was called Bob's Beverage Buck. <laughs> and it was a dollar bill with Bob Lamb's picture superimposed. This is kind of Bob Lamb's kind of I mean, he was kind of a little unorthodox. He was just kind of a guy who just kind of, kind of did things a little differently. Anyway, his his face was superimposed over uh, George Washington, and um, and it looked like a dollar bill it had Disney's Animal Kingdom logo on it, and and it was from the Bank of Bob, um, and the note said that you could redeem it for one complimentary beverage at Pride Rock Cafe, which is the cast member uh, commissary. Uh, cafeteria through April 22nd of 1998. And so it's kind of humorous. And it was a way to say thank you to the cast. Fortunately, it did say in Bob, we trust that would have gone way too far, but Bob had to get people to trust in doing this slide for life. And, um, workers were still perfecting the rig. Um, it's been, it'd been designed to transport stump people from the roof of, uh, of this three story set. And, uh, and Bob Lamb was listening to them and, and they were basically saying, well, if you trust it, why don't you try it, Bob? And so Bob said, okay. Um, and, uh, and in fact, they said, uh, if we're going to do it, you're going to do it. And if you don't let go of the rope, Bob, you won't fall. So, um, so he got up there on the top 
And as and and I've heard him share this story, but if you imagine, he's kind of a shorter guy, balding, um, middle aged. He's in this business suit and he grabs the rope. It kind of it's a rope that that kind of hangs over the rope that you go down on and you kind of put your hands in it to kind of hold on. And he held onto this rope and went down the slide for life to uh, uh, to to model that he trusted uh, the stunts that had been um, carefully prepared by um, by the team uh, in in creating this, particularly um, under the direction of, of Glenn Randall. That's not to say that they haven't had really tragic moments um, and, and accidents. Um, not long after the show opened, uh, there was a stunt performer who fell about 30 feet onto concrete when a restraining cable didn't didn't function the way it was supposed to. In another situation, one fell about 25 feet, landing on some crates after the ladder, you know, the ladder that they use up on the roof. Well, that apparently had collapsed prematurely. And then a third was squeezed by a trap door. Uh, they use, a, they use um, the trap door to, um, to have the performers escape, and that didn't quite function correctly. And, and frankly, Disney was fined for those situations. Uh, in another situation, um, uh, back in 2009, there was a stunt performer, uh, Anislav uh, Varbanov, uh, Varbanov, who was fatally injured during a rehearsal for the show after hours. Um, he was actually just doing a tumbling role. Um, and, um, but he got hurt doing that tumbling roll, and in the process, uh, he ended up uh, passing and and um, dying from the event. Uh, and that came, and that was in two thousand nine. That came the same summer when the monorail driver uh, Austin uh, Wunnenberg uh, died when another train backed into his uh, monorail that he was piloting. He tried to reverse the train, but he couldn't make it happen fast enough, and it came into him a very tragic event because a very personal event because our children went to the same school that his mother taught at, and uh, and then that same summer another there was a show called Captain Jack's Pirate Tutorial. It wasn't even a stunt show, just a kind of an interactive show. But he slipped on a wet spot on stage, banged himself into a wall. Um, went to the hospital, improved, but four days later passed on. So accidents occur, um, and it's tragic. It's tragic, especially because you see very professional performers at Indiana Jones Epic Stunt Spectacular who are really making risks. Um, and, and they know, and they practice, and they practice, and they practice, and they invest a lot of time in that safety equipment. But you know at the end of the day, there's still, there's still a potential for having uh, something really bad happen. It's amazing after, again, 50,000 performances that only a handful of 
serious fatalities have ever occurred, but still one is, um, or accidents, I should say, one fatality and a few serious accidents, but still one is too many, right? And yet people love the show, performers love being in the show, it is widely acclaimed and well missed by so many. Long and short of it is this. When they, when the performers and everybody on stage, when they clap their hands and give a thumbs up right before the last act, it's just not an idle expression. It's a commitment to focus, to give your very all and to trust in one another. That is a powerful, powerful concept. All of the stories I've shared here revolve around the same theme, trust. Trust is, as I said before, a felt sense of safety. Literally, metaphorically, it is synonymous with safety. The lack of trust is a major opportunity for many organizations. To better understand the concept of trust, consider there is a cost to building trust. There is a higher price we pay when we fail to build that trust. Like a bank account, trust fluctuates depending on the deposits and withdrawals we put into the relationships we have with others. That's why we call it having a relationship of trust. Trust is built when we make and we keep promises. Conversely, it is eroded through broken promises. It's better to not make a promise at all than to make one and break it. Now, with every Disney at Work podcast and post that we have, we offer free souvenirs for you and your organization. Consider the following. What are the critical messages for my organization in terms of trust? In what ways do I find trust manifested in my organization? What are the barriers to creating greater trust? How could I build better relationships of trust with others? How could I positively influence others in acting consistent with showing trust? Then I want to add these three questions for self-reflection. Do I trust others? How do my actions show that I trust others in my daily affairs? Second, do others trust me? What qualities cause others to trust me no matter the circumstance? Do I trust myself? What do I do that shows trust in myself day in, day out? I put these three sets of questions forward with my groups. I do entire day-long programs centered around building trust in organizations and I put these three sets of questions out there and I give them two minutes 
a piece for each question to write and write and write and write everything they're thinking of for each set of those three questions. And then at the end, I don't necessarily ask them to share what they wrote, but I ask them to consider of the three sets of questions, do I trust others? Do others trust me? Or third, do I trust myself? Which of the following sets of questions are the most difficult to answer? More times than not, it's actually that third set of questions. Do I trust myself? What do I do that shows trust in myself day in, day out? Confidence is a measurement of that trust that we have in ourselves. Stephen R. Covey said, trust, it's the glue of life. It's the most essential ingredient in effective communication. It's the foundational principle that holds all relationships. I also like what J.M. Barry said when he wrote the beloved Peter Pan. All the world is made of faith and trust and pixie dust. Thank you for joining me in this Disney at Work podcast. We appreciate you being a part. If you want to have more of these kinds of messages, messages that inspire you, inspire you and your work and with your organization, may I suggest checking out the Wayfinder Society. It's our Patreon page and you can check it out at disneyatwork.com with this post attached to this podcast. Check it out and take a look because we go across the worlds of Disney to look at stories and experiences that really speak to us in terms of how we lead, how we care for others, how we engage one another in the work setting, how we provide exemplary customer service. Be sure to check it out and come join us at the Wayfinder Society. Hey, thanks for being part of us. And uh, in the words of Sinbad, not the one at Universal, but the one at Tokyo Disney. In Tokyo Disney's Sinbad Storybook Voyage, he says, follow the compass of your heart. Have a great day. We'll see you real soon. Thank you.